Thank you for listening to The Real Deal with Damian Adams. This is Real Sports Talk for the Real Sports Fan. And I definitely appreciate all you Real Sports fans who are listening right now. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do me a huge favor and leave this podcast a five-star rating. That one, two, three, four, fifth, that five-star rating review will definitely be appreciated. If you're listening on any other platform, that could be Podomatic, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever. Please share from that platform so that your friends and family can see the podcast, listen to the podcast, love the podcast, subscribe, and then share with their friends and family. I'm trying to get this podcast to the highest levels of podcastivity. I need your help to get there. It'll be truly, truly appreciated. we got a lot to get to in today's episode. We're going to talk a little boxing, a little football, but we're going to start with basketball. We're going to start with Draymond Green being suspended indefinitely by the NBA after his incident with Yusef Nurkic. If you didn't see it, I'm pretty sure you have. If you're a sports fan, you listen to this podcast. But let me just describe it one more time for you. The Golden State Warriors are inbounding the ball. Yusef Nurkic is guarding Draymond Green. And they're towards the baseline. And Draymond Green does a 180 spin and catches Yusef Nurkic in the face with an open hand. Yusef Nurkic goes to the ground. Referee calls the flagrant foul. They review it. It's deemed to be a flagrant two. Draymond Green's ejected. Then it was announced yesterday, I believe, that the NBA has suspended Draymond Green indefinitely. Now, if you're not familiar with Draymond Green, you might think, dang, indefinitely, that's kind of steep. But you got to remember, this is Draymond Green. Draymond Green... I think in his head, truly believes that he's like the victim here. Like I did a video earlier today, and I chose this picture to do the background of this video, like a TikTok type video where you have a picture in the background while you talk. And I used the picture where it's right after it happens, the referee's calling the foul, and you see Draymond Green looking confused, as if he did nothing wrong. When he just got finished doing a twirling 180-degree karate chop to the face? Like how? How are you confused in that moment? How are you in that moment not like, oh, damn. That was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I should apologize now, right? And then you get to the post-game press conference. Now, for you guys who don't know, I work for a company called Burn City Sports. Check out BurnCitySports.com. Follow Burn City Sports on all social media platforms. We cover the Phoenix Suns and all Phoenix teams. So I was at the game. And it was my job to do the away team press conferences. So I'm sitting there, front row, as Draymond Green comes in. And there's a lot of Warrior reporters. Some teams don't have that many reporters that come with them. The Warriors have quite a few, including like, you know, Kendra Andrews and a few other reporters that follow the team. And it also had like, it was a TNT national game, so there was a TNT reporter there as well. So everybody's asking, hey, what happened? And he's like, well, I was trying to get the referee's attention, so I flailed. I don't flop. So I flailed, and when I flailed, I hit Yusef Nurkic in the face, unfortunately. And that's such a load of crap. Part of me wanted to say something in that moment, but then it would have been me being, you know, creating a confrontation instead of doing my job, right? But part of me wanted to really call him out on that because he also said, I'm not that accurate of a puncher. Like, what? Not that accurate of a puncher? We saw you punch Jordan Poole in the face. Like, we know what happened. Like, there was a whole thing about it. You had a TNT or, I guess, a Turner or a Bleacher Report type video where you're explaining what happened and you're being heartfelt and you're talking about how you have to gain the team's trust again. Like, we saw you punch pretty accurately in that moment. So to say that you're not accurate enough to do a twirling derby karate chop to somebody's face, stop it. And then he also said, 
I don't know if any of you guys have played against Yusef Nurkic, which he knows none of us have. But he's strong as shit. Okay. Yes, Yusef Nurkic is a big dude. Seven foot, 290, he's listed at. Solid. Like, Yusef Nurkic in person is a very big individual. So I can imagine if he's got his hand on your hip and he's gripping your hip, pause, you're trying to escape that, that that could be annoying, right? But there's so many different ways to do it. Like my first thing would have been to get my arm in between Yusef's arm and my hip, use my arm to get his hip away. And then if he's still holding on that moment, that's when you throw your hands up like, hey, as you're trying to get out of his grip and maybe get the foul call. But you throw your arms up. You don't do a full 180 and have your arms at his face where you can hit him. Or maybe you chop down at his arm. I've seen that done plenty of times where somebody's holding you. I've done it. Where I've had people playing basketball who want to hold you the whole time. Where you, you have the right to get their hands off of you. So you can push their hand away or chop down at their arm. Cool. That's something that can happen. But again, to do a full 180 and spin and hit this guy in the face, how? Like, what's going through your mind where that's the action? And you wish this was like a one-time thing, but there's a laundry list of incidents with Draymond Green where he can't control his emotions. You know how some people are cautionary tales where they've done a bunch of things in their life that could have been avoided. So they tell their story as a way to caution others to not make the mistakes they made. Draymond Green is a reactionary tale. He's a prime example of you have to control your emotions. You can't react to everything in such an extreme way. Um, I watched this show called Suits. That's on Netflix, right? And one of the characters on that show is Lewis Litt. Lewis is a lawyer, and Lewis can't control his emotions at all. Like, if he's angry, he's going to take out his anger on somebody else. If he's sad, he's going to be 100% sad. If he's happy, he's 100% happy. There's like no in-between with his emotions. Draymond Green is the Lewis Litt of the NBA. Like when he gets angry, he's going to take his anger on somebody. When he's happy, he's going to be super happy. When he's sad, he's super sad. Like there's no in-between with his emotions. He has to learn how to control it. And uh, I saw Stephen A. Smith talking about it. And he said that if this was LeBron James's teammate, LeBron James would get a lot more criticism than Steph Curry has. And I, I think that's stupid. Steph Curry is only like a year or two older than Draymond Green. Draymond is not some rookie who can't control his emotions. Dude been in the league a decade plus now. He should know how to control his emotions. He also should know that the other players are going to try to get under his skin. You see the same thing in the NFL with DK Metcalf, where teams know that's the game plan. Oh, DK Metcalf's a good player. He helps the Seattle Seahawks out a lot. We know he's a hothead. Let's try to get under his skin, try to get him ejected, or at least get him to commit a 15-yard penalty. And you see it week after week. Same thing with Draymond Green. We know he's emotional. We know he can't control his emotions. Let's try to get under his skin and see what happens. He's a reactionary tell. you got to control the way you react to others' actions. His reaction to LeBron James stepping over him in the finals got him suspended for a game in the finals. And you can argue that cost the Golden State Warriors a championship. His reaction to Kevin Durant being critical of him for turning the ball over in a regular season game, and that was in 2018, cost him Kevin Durant leaving. Now, Kevin Durant may have already made the decision that he was going to leave, but that definitely didn't help the fact that Draymond Green come out of his name and all these things in front of everybody. I'm pretty sure at that point, Kevin Durant was like, all right, I'm gone. His reaction. His reaction to Demond Sabonis 
or before I even get to that one, his reaction to Jordan Poole saying something slick to him cost the team their chemistry all season after he knocked out Jordan Poole. Even with the chemistry being jacked up, they made it to the playoffs. His reaction to Demise Sabonis grabbing onto him and them going back and forth. His reaction to Demise Sabonis grabbing his legs was for Draymond Green to stump on his man's chest and then use his chest as a springboard to go forward. Like, I don't know if people really talked about how crazy that was to stump on a man's chest in a basketball game. His reaction to Clay Thompson and Jaden McDaniels getting into it and Rudy Gobert trying to break it up was to try to choke out Rudy Gobert and that guy suspended five games. And then the latest one, of course, was his reaction to Yusef Nurkic holding his hip, led to him getting suspended indefinitely. He's a reactionary tail. And at this point, he's no longer worth the trouble. The Warriors have enabled this behavior. Think about last year. He punches Jordan Poole. They go through the season. Jordan Poole gets traded away. Not him. Jordan Poole gets traded away. Now, Jordan Poole being younger probably was easier to trade than Draymond Green, maybe. But Draymond Green at that point had developed the reputation of being a winning player who helps teams win. So I don't know if they could have gotten a sign and trade with him. But he definitely wouldn't have gotten a four-year, $100 million extension from another team. So Warriors reward him by getting rid of Jordan Poole and giving him a four-year extension. And Charles Barkley joked with Bob Myers. Bob Myers is the former GM who helped build the dynasty for the Warriors, who now works at ESPN and is on NBA Countdown. Last week, when they did the end-season tournament semifinals and finals, NBA and TNT kind of meshed together and had their shows meshed together. And Charles Barkley, joking with Bob Myers, said that he jumped off the ship at the right time. There's always truth in some type in those jokes, right? And you see it. He probably didn't want to sign Clay. Probably didn't want to sign Draymond. And he knew that he would have to leave because of the reaction he would get if he didn't bring those players back. And it's something that GMs and teams have to go through when they have teams that are this successful. How long do you hold on to those pieces? And also another thing that made it hard is the fact they won a championship two years ago. Now, I was mostly on the back of Steph Curry, but the fact that they won it and Steph got his finals MVP and you're like, okay, this team still got some juice left, might have been a little bit of fool's gold. But it's hard to say that because we criticize someone like Jerry Krause, rest in peace, for breaking up the Bulls when they were just coming off a championship, even though that team was getting older. How long do you just let it ride? Well, he had those built-in excuse last year, or the team had the built-in excuse last year. After you lose to the Lakers, be like, ah, we lost to the Lakers in the playoffs. That size really cost us. We didn't weren't athletic enough to stay with them. We need to get younger and we need to rebuild real quick around Steph before Steph gets you know too old to be the player that he still is right now. But instead, they doubled down on being an old team by trading away Jordan Poole, who's in his early 20s, to get a 38-year-old Chris Paul, re-signing Draymond, keeping Clay, and still having this team around Steph. And you see how the bench plays better than the starting lineup. And it's something where now you have Steph Curry or Steve Curry, excuse me, going with in a closing lineup instead of Andrew Wiggins and Clay Thompson going with their younger guys to go in there and try to close out the game because they're playing better. And what's going on with Andrew Wiggins? My man just hasn't been good all season. Like, I feel like there's something there that needs to be uncovered and why he's playing so bad because he shouldn't be this bad he's still in his prime technically he should be he should be their second best player at this point and he's been trash all season and Golden State now without Draymond in a very loaded Western Conference probably not gonna make the playoffs this year and where do you go from here with a guy in Draymond that you still have you still have on the books for the next three years 
I just don't see why they did that. Why they rewarded him in the way they rewarded him for his behavior. And now once you reward bad behavior, it brings on more bad behavior. And that's what we saw with him choking Rudy Gobert, what we saw him giving Yusef Nurkic the karate chop to the face. So we're going to go ahead and take our first music break. On this episode, man, I'm going to pay homage to Eric Benet. Like he's underrated as far as R&B singers. He got some classics, man, some jams. So I'm going to go ahead and give him some props on this episode. And we'll be right back talking more NBA.
Welcome back to The Real Deal with Damian Adams. Hopefully you enjoyed that music break. So let's get into a little more NBA talk. Last week, the NBA in-season tournament came to an end, the first one. And I believe we'll definitely have more of the NBA in-season tournament. And for the first one, man, I thought this went really well. Really well, because you need something during the regular season to bring in the casual fan. You need something that's going to put more eyes on the product. You need something that you can sell as a product because it's all about trying to make more money, right, at the end of the day. And the only criticism I have of it is some of the courts. Some of the courts need to change for next year. I like the difference as far as, like, having a different court for those games so you know this is a different game. This is something going on. But some of the courts are just way too loud. Like, when I watched, it was Houston, New Orleans, in Houston. Houston's court was so loud. The red with, like, the royal blue, it was way too loud. Like, my eyes literally had to, like, okay, let me adjust a little bit. I mean, yeah, I got to blink your eyes a couple of times to adjust to what you're seeing. Had to do that, right? Uh, another court, 76ers court was red. I think the Bulls court was red. No red courts. No red courts. Um, but I like that each team has something different for their court, but no red courts. The Lakers court, the gold on the outside or the super bright yellow. Let's do the yellow down the middle and have the purple on the outside because the yellow, again, way too bright. Like, yo, craziness. The next court with the orange on out, yo, super bright, super loud. Stop it. Okay, don't do that no more. But some courts are dope. I liked Atlanta's court. The it was like a kind of like a blue and light blue type combination. I like that one. I like the Pelicans court. It's not just me being a homer. I like their court. It was different. Uh, the Suns court was really dope, both on TV and in person. I liked their court a lot. Uh, I liked Boston's court. Boston's court was cool as well. The Pacers, their court was dope. So there were some courts that were really dope. There were some that were just not. But this is the first time that they're doing this. So, you know, you can give a pass on that. But next year, definitely get rid of the red courts. Any court that's super bright with the yellow or the orange, get rid of those. Like, let's go with colors that present well on TV. Because that's the main thing. Most people are going to be watching these games on TV and not there in person. I'm pretty sure in person, those courts don't look as bad as they did on TV. But they were just... Yo, but I like the creativity and the effort to be creative for that. I like the jerseys. A lot of the jerseys that were presented during the in-season tournament that are like the city edition jerseys. like those a lot. I like the format of having a different groups and having like the group play. Um, the only thing I would add for next year, I think they can make it longer. Like having only four games per group when you could... Maybe play two games each and have eight games and make it to where you're like, okay, it's not as much about the point differential because you have more games where you won't have as many people tied with the same record. Um, as far as the tiebreaker being point differential, I don't have a problem with it. I know that some people are going to have a problem with it because it incentivizes teams to continue to try to score when the game is pretty much in hand. But again, you got to stop it. If you are a professional team, stop that other team from trying to score. Like, play. Don't cry about it. Play ball. Don't try to be upset about that because you think it's part of the unwritten rules. No, there's a reason for them to try to score in this way. Like, for example, the Suns, they don't make it if Devin Booker, I think it was late against Memphis, he shot a three-pointer late in that game that pushed him over in point differential. So it makes a difference. So they wouldn't have made it to the quarterfinals without that shot. So it made a difference. Um, outside of the courts, I think that they could change the timing of it. So J.J. Redick was on the low post, and he talked about it. He said he thinks they should do it after Christmas, which makes sense because every sport that has you know, a crazy amount of games, like baseball, like basketball, like hockey, they have a certain portion of their season that they can call the dog days of whatever, right? Like the baseball has the dog days of summer where 
they're no longer in the excitement of April, and it's no and it's not close enough to the playoff, you know, race yet to where you still have those in between time where you're just like you still if you're a baseball fan you're watching, but you could tell players are kind of like kind of just getting through it grinding. Same thing in basketball when it comes to January before the All Star break, you could tell some teams are dragging at that point. Some teams are going through the dog days of January. So if you have this in season tournament, say let's say it starts where you have the group play before Christmas and after Christmas is when you have, you know, the last part of the group play and then the tournament itself then. I think that would be dope, right? To have it in January and maybe you have it end on like Martin Luther King Day. Right? Martin Luther King Day is a big day for the NBA that usually have a lot of games. So you could have it to where the last games on Martin Luther King Day would be the semifinals, or you get where the last game on MLK Day is the finals. And you have that Saturday before MLK Day, you have the semifinals, then that Monday is the finals. Maybe you have it in that type of fashion. Um, but overall, I definitely liked it and thought that it was dope. And it does a great deal for small market teams. So I know the Lakers ultimately want it. And they don't need the promotion like other teams do. But think about the Indiana Pacers. The Indiana Pacers put themselves in the spotlight because of the way they played in this tournament. Tyrese Halliburton put himself in the spotlight because of the way he played. And now he's somebody whose name is going to be continued to be brought up in the MVP conversation because he performed well on national TV, on the national stage. They also can go the opposite direction where if you don't perform well, you're going to get criticized. So this brings me to my New Orleans Pelicans and specifically Zion Williamson. So in the semifinals, the New Orleans Pelicans played against the Los Angeles Lakers, didn't play well at all. The Lakers smacked them, ran them out the building. And Zion was not good. Zion only had like 12 points. And he's played better before against LeBron. Like he's had games against LeBron where he took it to LeBron and it was really like, okay, this is my time going at it. But this game, I don't know if it was their game plan or what, but he didn't play well. And they also were just sitting in the paint waiting on him. And that's something where he has to get more comfortable with his in-between mid-range jumper, little floater shot, where he can shoot that to where he makes them step up. But because of that performance, he was criticized by Charles Barkley, by Shaq, and by Stephen A. mainly. Among that's a, the biggest voices that were heard, and Stephen A went in like he went to a different level of criticism where he said that he spoke to chefs in New Orleans who are trying to basically they want to get Zion in their restaurant where Zion eats so much that they're waiting on him. They said that Zion will eat the table, like he'll eat the entire menu basically and even on his podcast he said that Zion looks fat that Zion took a deep breath and he saw his belly jiggle and this definitely is a double standard when it comes to quote-unquote body shaming because he definitely couldn't say this about a female athlete if there's like a woman athlete out there who was out of shape who may have had a little belly you wouldn't be able to say it because Everybody would come down on how could you say this about a woman? Da 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 da. When the thing is, when it comes to sports, your body is your job. So I believe it is within the realm of okay criticism to talk about a player's body if their body isn't there, if it appears that they're out of shape, right? And it's not all about appearance, right? There's some guys who just carry heavier. Like for a boxing example, Tyson Fury is in great condition usually for his fights. Doesn't gas out. You definitely cannot tell that by looking at him. He doesn't look like a guy who's in great shape, but his cardio is usually there. So it's not about all about how the body looks, but with Zion, there's times where it looks like he's out of shape. It looks like he's tired. It looks like he's wearing down as the game goes along. But also seems like at times he just needs extra motivation. Because the next very next game, he dropped 36, a season high against the Timberwolves. The Timberwolves are a very good defensive team. Couldn't do anything with him because he seemed motivated. Seemed like he was the announcer, Antonio Daniels, said several times during the game, Zion got something on his mind tonight. Why did it take Shaq, Charles Barkley, 
Stephen A. Smith going at him in that way to motivate him. Now, in that game, he sprained his ankle. Hopefully, he's not out too long. But he was just questionable for the last game. Hopefully, he plays in the next one. But as somebody who's a, you know, a member of the media now who is at the press conferences and things like that, for me, I do think that Stephen A. went a little too far with the criticism. But it is within the realm of stuff that can be criticized. But if there's a, in the future, if there's a female athlete who struggles with weight or struggles to stay in shape and is criticized for it, I don't want people to come out with their torches and throw all their arrows at whoever has that criticism of them because they didn't do the same here. Now, some people did come out and say that Stephen A. went too far. There were people that said, yo, you didn't have to say all that. Which I agree with. I agree that it was a little too far. Didn't have to go that far with what you said. But it's maybe what Zion needed. When you play on national TV, you got to bring it. Unless you want people to criticize you in that way. So being a Pelicans fan, seeing how he played the next day, like, okay. He came out ready to go and dropped 36 on a very good defensive team in the Timberwolves. This is what he needed. And, you know, it may be something that Stephen A. regrets later, right? Stephen A. did say he regrets the way he went in Kwame Brown earlier in his career. But guys like that are going to come at you. There's going to be a time where I say something that an athlete has a problem with because my platform is going to get bigger eventually. I'm speaking into existence. And there's going to be a time where you have an issue with that. I have to see how I react to that. Do I change the way I talk about these things or do I even go harder because of it? And Stephen A is in a position where he has to go hard on everything because that's what's expected of him, right? He has to bring it, right? And even on things that we all agree on, he starts to say it in a demonstrative way, like Steph Curry is the best shooter of all time. Yes, we agree, Stephen. You don't have to say it like that. We we all agree on that. That's something that's universally agreed upon with basketball fans. But he'll still say it in a demonstrative way to be entertaining. And sometimes the entertainment factor can go a bit too far. And I think it went too far with Zion. So we're going to go ahead and take our second music break. When we come back, talk a little boxing. Got a big matchup this weekend in Arizona. And we also got to talk about Devin Haney and what he did last week against Regis Progray. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to The Real Deal with Damien Adams. Hopefully you enjoyed that music break. Again, today we are paying homage to Eric Benet, giving him some love. Got some classic joints from him. So now let's get into a little boxing. Uh, last week, we had Devin Haney in his first fight at the 140-pound division, taking on Regis Prograde for his title at 140 pounds. And Devin Haney won all 12 rounds on all the judges' scorecards. That's very rare to see in a 12-round bout. Because usually when you have that happen, it's a young prospect who's coming up, who's fighting against somebody who's just now on his level as he's trying to build his resume. And it's like a four-round, six-round fight, maybe eight-round fight that you see dominated in that way. But for Devin Haney to dominate Regis Progray for each second of a 12-round fight for a world title it's crazy impressive. Crazy impressive. He did everything correct in that fight. Everything. And this was his first time at 140. He looked very strong at 140. You could tell the difference in him having to drain his body at 135 compared to 140. Those five pounds make a difference. And there's also been some news that he was like 160 or 165 going into the ring after he rehydrated. Okay. That's fine. Um, it's not like he was leaning his body in a Tyson Fury type way on Regis Progray to wear him down. He just outskilled Regis Progray in a major way. Uh, Regis Progray is somebody who I'm always going to be a fan of. I'm always going to support. He took the time to come on this podcast well before, you know, any of the success I've seen happened. And I'll always be grateful to him for that. We're both from New Orleans. Both born on January 24th, so I always gonna root for him, right? We were born one year apart, exactly. He's one year older than me. So I'm always gonna support him. But I knew going into this fight, he was fighting an uphill battle because athletically, he's just not in the same stratosphere as Devin Haney. Devin Haney, the footwork of Devin Haney is amazing. Devin Haney, Shakur Stevenson, Vasil Lamachinko, Bam Rodriguez, who I'll talk about here in a bit as he's fighting this weekend. All have amazing footwork. They do a great job of using their feet to create angles, to maneuver right when somebody's trying to punch. And Devin Haney had the reach advantage and the footwork advantage and the speed advantage in this fight. And it looks like the, almost the power advantage. It's hard to say that because Regis Progray didn't land any power shots, really. But Devin Haney had every advantage in this fight and took advantage of that in a major way. Regis Progray is a two-time world champion. 
two-time world champion who now has two losses on his resume. One against Josh Taylor, who was formerly undisputed at 140, and now against a former undisputed champion in David Haney. So when you look at his resume and see that his two losses came to two guys who were undisputed at one point, it's, it's hard to look at that and say, oh, Haney took the easy route. Especially when Raleigh Romero is a champion at 140. Now, Raleigh Romero, if you don't remember, the only reason he's famous is because he got knocked out by Javante Davis. right? He talked his way into a Javante Davis fight, got knocked out by Tank, and then got gifted a world title shot against Ismael Barrazo. Ismael Barrazo was beating him soundly and he was somehow was stopped. <laughs> Riley Romero got the advantage at one point in the fight and the referee stopped it when Ismael Barrazo wasn't hurt. And Riley Romero was not only gifted a title shot but it was gifted the title. And if Devin Haney truly wanted an easy title at 140. He could have took on Roger Romero and the fight probably would have sold well because Romero, one thing he could do is he could talk trash. He could talk trash, he could sell a fight. So he probably would have sold the fight well, but then got dominated. And I think it would have been even worse than the way Regis Progray got dominated. Now, Roger Romero is a better athlete than Regis Progray, but Regis Progray is a much better boxer. Than Ryan Romero. So Ryan Romero would have been able to maybe get on the inside and muck it up a bit and make it a bit ugly against Devin Haney because he's athletic enough to get on the inside. But Haney would have destroyed him with counter shots the entire night and probably knocked him out, honestly. So he took on Regis Progray, who, again, two-time world champion, only one loss on his record up to that point, and made it look easy. Regis Progray landed 36 punches. He averaged three punches landed per round. That's the least amount of punches landed in a 12-round fight in history. Forever, forever, ever, forever, ever. Yes, that's the in ever of the sport. And it's never been a more dominant defensive performance than that. We're talking about guys like Roy Jones Jr. never did that. Floyd Mayweather never did that. To have somebody only land 36 punches is crazy in a 12-round fight. And some people can be critical of Devin Haney for not going after the knockout more. But the thing is, it was still entertaining. It wasn't like when Shakur Stevenson took on Edwin De Los Santos. Because Shakur Stevenson didn't throw enough punches. He dominated, but didn't throw enough punches. Devin Haney was able to dominate in the same way while still being active offensively. And again, his footwork, the way he used the jab, the way he used his straight right hand, right uppercut, body work, it just was beautiful, man. And now the question is, what's next for Devin Haney? The mandatory is Sandar Martin. Uh, no disrespect to Sandar Martin, but I don't need to see that fight. Uh, Martin's a good fighter. He gave Teofimo Lopez a very difficult fight because of his movement. The thing is, against Devin Haney, Devin Haney's going to be able to cough the ring. Uh, Senator Martin will make Devin Haney be the aggressor. But the thing is, Devin Haney can fight and be the aggressor. It's not like it's, he can't do that. So I think that that would be an easy win for Devin Haney. So I don't know if they would have to pay Martin a step-aside fee, but hopefully he would step aside so we get Devin Haney against Teofimo Lopez. That's the fight we need. That's the fight we want at 140. Um, another fight that's out there is Ryan Garcia. I saw Oscar De La Hoya talk about he wants to get Ryan Garcia versus Devin Haney. Ryan Garcia should take on Raleigh Romero. He could beat Raleigh Romero and get himself a world title. He hasn't had a world title yet. Very popular fighter. Definitely has potential, good power, uh, but outside of fighting Tank, what's his accomplishment? He should get a world title belt under his resume. Get a world title from Raleigh, be dominant against Roger Romero, and then you can put your hat in the ring and say, I want to take on Teofimo, I want to take on Devin Haney. And you can make more big money matches if you truly believe Ryan Garcia is that good. I don't think he's good enough for either of those guys. I think that Teofimo or Haney will knock out Ryan Garcia. Because I think Haney at 140 is going to have more power. We saw that against Regis Progray. Regis Progray can take a shot. 
and he was able to drop Regis Progray and hurt him at different times in the fight because of his quickness. It was funny because you have to give Regis Progray credit because he just didn't make any excuses. He said, hey, he's better than me. And when I got dropped, I was like, what the fuck just happened? I didn't even see the punch coming. So with Devin Haney, there's options out there, but Teofimo Lopez is definitely number one option. Then you have to go with maybe Ryan Garcia or if, you know, Ryan Romero is the guy, Devin Haney could go ahead and take that belt easily. They'll have two. Another fight out there is Mateus. He's the other champion there at 140. Uh, Mateus is a guy who is like a, a boogeyman, right? He's somebody who's just going to walk you down and continue to hit you with power shots. And he's been able to take those power shots from his opponents while he just comes forward. Like Jason, like Michael Myers, that type of guy. I think Devin Haney would be able to pick him apart. Really. Teofimo Lopez would be interesting. I think Regis Progray versus Mateus would be a really good fight, honestly, because both of those guys want to fire on the inside. They just want to go bang, bang, bang with you. That would be a good one. But I think that, you know, if he has the if he has the ambition to be undisputed, then Mateus would be a good next fight as well. There's a lot of good options out there for Devin Haney, but the uh, sky's the limit. He can even go up to 140 and maybe take on a Boots Ennis or somebody like that to put his name in the ring for 147. He's that skilled and has the size to go up to 147 as well. Now, the fight this weekend. We have a fight at the 112-pound division between Sonny Edwards and Bam Rodriguez. This is a very interesting fight. Bam Rodriguez is an offensive fighter who uses angles to create openings and punches and also is able to be defensively sound while doing that. Sonny Edwards is somebody who likes to move around the ring, loves to counter punch with like one shot punches, right? Like loves to pop shot you. He cannot go into this fight being cocky though. And I was watching Sonny Edwards again, so I forgot who he was fighting against. This was, of course, some months back, and my wife came down. I was watching, was watching boxing, and she was like, "No, this dude's fight fights really cocky. It's a really cocky fighter." And again, my wife's not a huge boxing fan, but she just noticed that in the low time she was down. She came down to get a snack or something and watched a little bit with me. And he can't go into this fight being cocky because he will get knocked out. I think it's going to be a good fight. I think that Sonny Edwards understands that he can't fight in that same manner against Bam Rodriguez. It's going to be interesting to see if Sonny Edwards has to be more active as far as his punch output because he won't be able to pot shot Bam Rodriguez. Now, if Bam comes in too wild and tries to take out Sonny Edwards, Sonny Edwards may be able to catch him with something, but we don't know if Edwards has the power to truly affect Bam Rodriguez. So Bam has to keep a jab in Edwards' face, make it hard for Edwards to counter, cut off the ring to make sure that Edwards isn't able to escape, and use his angles like he does with his footwork to create those punching angles for him. Sonny Edwards has to keep fighting in the middle of the ring, make sure he doesn't get caught in the ropes. He has to use his jab. He has to be more active as far as his punch output to make sure that Bam doesn't win rounds because he's just more active. I think this is a very, very interesting fight that will be a good one. I'm going to go with Bam Rodriguez by decision, but I think this is a very good fight. If you are someone who is not familiar with these guys, you should go ahead and tune in. It's going to be on The Zone on Saturday out here in Glendale, Arizona. So I haven't checked to see what the tickets are. I won't be able to go to that one, but I wish I could go in person. But I'll try to go to the next one out here in person when in January, Hamimigawa, or Hamimigia, excuse me, takes on John Ryder. In Phoenix in January, I might try to go to that one. So we'll have to wait and see. But good fight on this Saturday between Bam Rodriguez and Sonny Edwards. Smaller weight class. I know some people don't keep up with the smaller weight classes like that. But these are two guys who are very, very good at what they do. And it should be a good fight. And it's been a lot of talk back and forth, too. Like, both guys want to knock out the other one. So we're looking forward to that fight on Saturday. And shout out to Devin Haney, man, for just being... A boxer's boxer like he's a boxing fans boxer he's bringing the fights that you want to see and he's fighting in a style that you can appreciate both from a technical and entertainment standpoint for sure so we're going to take our last music break when i come back talk a little football we'll be right back
To the real deal with Damien Adams. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode so far and the Eric Benet music breaks. So now let's get into a little NFL talk. Last week, really entertaining football weekend as one of the games, the marquee game was Buffalo versus Kansas City, which Buffalo won 20-17. Now, there was a big play in that game towards the end where Patrick Mahomes throws it to Travis Kelsey. Travis Kelsey makes this crazy play as he's running down the field. He sees Kadarius Tony running by himself, throws it to Kadarius Tony. You gotta remember that Travis Kelsey's a former quarterback, played quarterback in high school, a little bit in college, and threw a perfect pass to Kadarius Tony on the lateral. 
and Kadarius Tony runs to the end zone to take the lead, which we think. But there's a flag on the field. Kadarius Tony was lined up off sides. And this has caused a big controversy because people are saying you rarely ever see that call made with the wide receiver being lined up in the neutral zone. That's because most times the wide receiver looks over to the referee to make sure that they're lined up correctly, and then the referee will tell them, oh, you need to back up or you can scoop a little bit, and then they run the play. Kadarius Tony and that play doesn't look over to the referee. He's literally lined up where his foot is covering the football. Like, he's offsides. So it was the correct call. And for people to say, oh, that call shouldn't have been made, what? So we're just going to ignore the rules now? And because they're like, oh, it didn't have an effect on the play. If a defensive lineman is lined up in the neutral zone, the play is the flag's going to be called even if it doesn't affect the play. Should be the same thing offensively. And I saw today, like, Dan Orlowski was talking about how it shouldn't have been called because it was something that Kadarius Tony got away with a few other times during the game. Just because you do something wrong a few times and don't get caught doesn't mean that at the time you get caught, it shouldn't have been called out. What? That line of thinking makes no sense. Makes no sense at all. And again, if he looks over to the referee and puts his thumb up, to ask if he's good, that's when the referee can tell him to back up. He didn't do that. Because Kadarius Tony makes mistakes. That's what he does. He either drops balls or he makes mistakes. And I saw that Travis Kelsey was getting on his podcast, was mad about the media criticizing wide receivers. What? Are we supposed to act like it's not happening? Are we supposed to act like we don't see the wide receivers dropping passes. Patrick Mahomes is still very good. You're still very good, Travis Kelsey. But the offense isn't as good. Andy Reid's still a very good coach. What's happening? The wide receivers are not doing their job. The offensive line is good. Like, Patrick Mahomes is getting time. The wide receivers are not coming through. They're not. And not just drops. There's times where analysts have pointed out, like, the wide receiver ran the wrong route. Or their route wasn't precise. So when the media, during our job of analyzing the game, we got to point that out. Come on, Travis. Come on, bro. Uh, also, talking about last week, the Cowboys, man. Smacking the Eagles, 33-13. That's nuts. Yo, Tennessee winning that game against Miami on Monday night was crazy. Both games were crazy. The Giants beating the Packers and Tennessee beating Miami. Both Monday night games were nuts. The fact that they were both on at the same time sucks. Stop doing the doubleheader Monday night thing. That's stupid. The whole reason for Thursday night football, Sunday night football, and Monday night football is to have a solo game that you focus on. But I digress. That Tennessee made two crucial mistakes where they basically gave Miami the ball in their own red, in their red zone. To where they didn't have to do much to get the touchdown, right? And I'm like, oh, they just gave the game away. <laughs> and somehow Miami manages to give that game away is remarkable to me. They, there's no way they should have lost that game. Tennessee gave it to them on a silver platter and they gave it back. Like, yo, we don't want this. Like, they gave them a steak and they was like, yeah, you know, we're not really in a steak right now. We're going to get chicken. They just gave it back to them. Nuts. Nuts how they lost that game. But that's enough of last week. Let's move forward to this week. Give you my predictions for the week. All right. So first game tonight, I'm recording this on Thursday afternoon. So by the time you hear this podcast, most likely this game will be done. But I don't care because I don't care about this game. I'm not watching one second of this game. People force themselves to watch bad football. I don't understand that. Like, there's other sports to watch. Like, there's good NBA games on the night. Like, why am I going to force myself to watch Chargers Raiders? The Raiders aren't good. The Chargers aren't good. And there's no Justin Herbert. Like, why am I doing this? So, I'm not going to watch this game. Um, but just give you a prediction. I'm going to go Vegas 10 to 7. For Saturday night, we got three games on Saturday. We got Minnesota at Cincinnati. I'm going to go Cincinnati in that one. Cincinnati. 24 to 17, Minnesota. 
For the next game on Saturday, we got Pittsburgh at Indianapolis. I'm going to go with the Colts in this one because Pittsburgh with Mitchell Trubisky, I just don't trust. So give me the Colts. And Colts, 17-10 in that one. For the third game on Saturday night, we have Denver at Detroit. This is a very interesting game. Denver's playing a lot better lately. Detroit kind of coming back down to earth. So I think Denver wins this one. We'll go Denver 27-24 to over Detroit. Sunday, we have Atlanta at Carolina. Give me Atlanta in that one. No need to give a score. Carolina just stinks. Uh, we got Chicago at Cleveland. This is a very interesting game. Cleveland's been playing really well with Joe Flacco at quarterback. Their defense is balling. But Chicago's been playing better lately. This is a very interesting game. Give me Cleveland in this one, though. Cleveland, 21-17. to uh, Tampa Bay at Green Bay. This is another good game. Like this is a like there's a lot of competitive games this weekend. Uh, give me Green Bay, twenty four to twenty. Then we have the New York Jets at Miami. Uh, the Jets defense will keep this somewhat close, but give me Miami to end this one, uh, twenty one to thirteen. We got the Giants at the Saints in this one. Um, I will be a guest on the. Blind Blitz on Monday. So check me out on that show. Uh, Nikki Nick is a big Giants fan. Their producer is a big Giants fan. Uh, so I'll be on there recapping this game. Uh, but give me the Saints in this one. I know the Giants are playing better in the Saints. Derek Carr. Why is Derek Carr playing? Sorry for the tangent. Why is Derek Carr still playing? Please tell me why. Derek Carr has been absolutely horrible. Horrible. Not only is he not pushing the ball downfield, but he's also turning the ball over. And the thing you worry about with Jameis Winston is turning the ball over. If Derek Carr's going to turn the ball over, put Jameis in. If you want to win, let Jameis spin. If you want to win, let Jameis spin. Because Derek Carr's not getting a job done. And the only reason we have hope is because we're in a horrible division. And don't get me started on my whole division take again. If you haven't heard it, real quick. A team shouldn't be rewarded with a home playoff game because they won a trash division. Go with the best seven records and the top four get the home games. Or the top two through four get the first home games and one seed gets to buy. But it shouldn't be by division. You shouldn't get an automatic playoff spot and an automatic playoff home game just because you won your division. If you have a good enough record, cool. But just because you won your division, it's crazy. Think about it like right now, I believe it would be Philadelphia. Philadelphia would have to go to Atlanta if the season ended right now and play in Atlanta. What? Why? That makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. Right now... Let me go back up to the records. Philadelphia is 10-3. They would have to go to a 6-7 Atlanta or Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay, I think, right now has a tiebreaker. So, excuse me. Philadelphia would have to go to Tampa Bay to play them in the first round of the playoffs. How does that make sense? And I'll have people that will argue me down that, oh, it's the way it is. The NFL is not the way it is. Things change. Change that. You have 17 games now. Only six are division games. So the fact that those division games don't add up to 40% of your schedule, but somehow still counts as being so important because of the rules, is stupid. It's dumb. Just go with the best records. And you have the best teams in the playoffs. If that division doesn't have a team that represents them in the playoffs, or only has one team that's at the bottom of it and doesn't get a home game, fine. It's not going to ruin anything. But it's just doesn't make sense competitively for a team that's in a good division just because they happen to have a, another team in that division that's really good to have to be on the road against a crappy team that just happened to one to win a trash division. It makes no sense. It's stupid. But because of that, the Saints, who are at 6-7 and seven as well, have a chance to make the playoffs. And I think they will improve their chances by beating the Giants. Uh, Giants offense, I think Tom DeVito will come back down to earth this week against that Saints defense. 
So give me Saints. Saints 17, Giants 13. Low scoring, boring game. Uh, Kansas City at New England. Kansas City easily wins this game. Uh, Houston at Tennessee. Um, Houston's kind of going through it right now with injuries. Tennessee's been playing better. I'm going to go with Tennessee in the upset in this one. Tennessee 27, Houston 20. Uh, we got uh, San Francisco at Arizona. This is going to be a rough watch. San Francisco is going to blow out Arizona. Give me San Francisco 30, Arizona 10. Washington at the Rams. Give me the Rams to win this one. Dallas at Buffalo. Very interesting game. I'm going to go Buffalo with the upset in this one. I think Buffalo started firing their way, and Buffalo needs this game. Like, they need to win out, basically, to make the playoffs because of the way of the tiebreakers. Give me Buffalo 28, Dallas 27. Uh, Sunday night, we got Baltimore at Jacksonville in that one. Ooh. That's a good game. Uh, Jacksonville's lost two in a row, but been very competitive games. They lost. Ugh. Baltimore's defense been playing better. So I'm going to go Baltimore in that one, but a good game. Give me Baltimore 27, Jacksonville 24. And then Monday night, we got Philadelphia at Seattle. Give me Philadelphia to bounce back in that one to win on Monday night. So let me know if you agree with my picks. I know when I was all over the place ranting and raving and whatnot, but hopefully you enjoyed the episode, and I'll try to bring it to you more consistently week by week. All right? Until next time, go real or go home.